You're listening to Story City Church in Granada Hills, California. We exist to glorify God by leading communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and with others. And here is this week's message. We love standing in the reading of God's Word because we believe God's Word is holy uh, and it's it's just a sign of just like preparing our hearts, preparing our minds for the receiving of God's Word and the preaching of God's Word. So I want to read Colossians 2, 20 through 3, 4, as we continue in our series in Colossians. It reads this. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, Story City. How's everybody doing today? Cool. Um, My name is Chris Wozniki, and I am one of your elders here at the church. Uh, And I just want to start out this morning by congratulating you. Can you guys give yourselves a round of applause? Give yourselves a round of applause. There you go. Um, Why give yourselves a round of applause? Well, it's because you survived the month of January, possibly the longest January in human history. Yes, it was 31 days. But with everything that happened, it felt like three months. Um, Remember back when uh, you probably made some New Year's resolutions? You know, I'm going to read more. I'm going to be on social media less. I'm going to pick a new hobby. uh, And then the infamous, I'm going to lose some weight. Right? How's that going? All right. Um, I can tell you, for me, the best way to describe it is meh. You know? That's a resolution a lot of us make, and like we can talk about like culturally why we do that, why we feel like we have to do that. Uh, But set aside all like the deep important things for the second. Um, It's not just a New Year's resolution, right? For a lot of us, it's a new month resolution. It's a new week resolution. It's a oh Saturday came, uh, I'm gonna start again on Monday resolution. Which brings us to fad diets. You know, diets come and go, and they all promise that if you do fill in the blank, right, you're going to lose weight. And some of them are kind of normal-ish, right, keto, paleo, Atkins. Some of them are really weird. You know, I remember a while ago there was this particular diet. There was this trend of people giving themselves tapeworms. Um, You know, the parasite that you get from eating undercooked meat and there's larvae in this that's like not cooked. So the larvae is in in your belly and the eggs hatch and you get a worm in your body, and the worm absorbs all the nutrients, and you lose some weight. Yeah, that, that was a thing. Um, 
there's a bunch of, of like fad diets. In the 20s, like cigarette companies advertised smoking as a way to lose weight. Um, I mean, you, you might lose some weight. I mean, there's other health problems that come with it. Um, there's a cabbage soup diet where you eat cabbage every day for a month, except you get a baked potato once a week. There's like a cheat day, I guess, a big pota- plain baked potato. Um, there's a cotton ball diet where you dip cotton balls in orange juice and eat them. Um, that's supposed to help somehow. And like you see these things and from an outside perspective, you see how dumb they are, right? Um, their promises that if you do X, Y, and Z, if you follow these strict guidelines, you're gonna lose weight. But they're actually promises that don't last. You know, putting yourself through the ringer is not gonna bring lasting change. Like you might lose a few pounds here or there in a week or two, but it's not gonna be lasting, right? The only thing that actually brings that lasting change, unfortunately, is exercise and a consistent, healthy diet. And I bring this up because culturally, we are just surrounded by techniques and promises of lasting change all around us, right? Whether it's a gratitude journal to change your vibe, cold plunges, which are like a thing now for mental fortitude or whatever, right? Promises of lasting change, if you follow this rigorous formula, are all around us, right? That's true even in terms of spiritual growth. And today, as we dive into God's word, we're gonna see uh, where the power for lasting change actually comes from. So let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, you are so good to us, God. You um, are eternal, you are powerful, you are king, and you love to be with your people. Lord, we know that you're present with us, teaching us, guiding us, shaping us to be more like you. God, I pray that as we open the word that you would speak that any distractions would just fall away, that we would hear what you have for us, and that our hearts would be able to respond adequately. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So for the last month, we've been working our way through the book of Colossians, uh, Paul's letter to the church that was planted by a man named Epaphras. And this church had been dealing with a problem. Uh, it's called, academics call it the Colossian heresy. Right? We don't know the full extent of like what exactly the heresy was. And in some ways, I think that's actually kind of providential. Like if we knew exactly what it was, then we could easily say like, nope, we're not doing that. That's not us. But in God's wisdom, he gives us just enough information where like we know that the problem they're facing is actually a timeless problem. So this heresy that came up blended legalism from Jewish religious traditions and pagan mysticism from their mystery religions. And it's this syncretistic blend of pagan and Jewish views. And in a nutshell, it said that Jesus is like a really good way to start the Christian journey. But if you want to advance, if you want to grow your faith, Jesus isn't enough. You need to add certain things. And Paul comes in and basically teaches them this formula that Jesus... And we've said this several times, Jesus plus something equals nothing. When you add stuff to the gospel, even if stuff might be kind of okay in principle, not even inherently sinful, right, you lose the power of the gospel. 
The truth, on the other hand, that Paul wants them to know is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing else is actually the entirety of the gospel. So Paul comes in writing this letter for his friend Epaphras to a church that he's never ministered at, and he gives them Jesus. He gives them a really high view of Jesus, potentially the biggest view of Jesus that we get in the entire Bible. You know, when I was doing uh, college ministry years ago, we did a series uh, titled, Your Jesus is Too Small. That was their problem. Their Jesus was too small. And Paul's Jesus, he was really big. You know, Paul says that he's the image of the invisible God, that everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and visible thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things created by him and for him. All things hold together in him. He's the head of the church. He has first place in everything. The entire fullness of God's nature dwelled bodily in him. That's the Jesus of the Colossian Christians. That's the same Jesus who lives in us today. He's the hope of glory. Last week, Jonathan gave us some heresy. Um, Well, he gave us what the heresy was, right? Uh, He reminded us that when culture, which sometimes leads away from Jesus, not always, sometimes, right? There's a lot of good grace in culture, but sometimes when it leads us away from Jesus, when it collides with him, that Jesus always wins. So we saw what that heresy was. Now we're gonna take a look at how it's affecting the spiritual lives of this church. So go ahead and open up your Bibles or your apps to Colossians 2, starting at verse 20. Give you a second to get there. It is also uh, up on the screen. So 2.20 says this. It says, If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? So Paul asks them this hypothetical question. He says, if you died with Christ, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Well, did they die with Christ? Yeah, Paul just finished saying back in verse 12 that they were buried with him in baptism. In fact, Paul, he reminds this truth basically to all his churches. Romans 6, 8 says, if we died with Christ, we believe that we live with him also. Romans 6, 6 We know our old self was crucified with him. Romans 6, 4, are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then 2 Timothy 2, 1, which I think is a beautiful verse. It says, this saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. So in some way, his death really is our death. You have died with him. So if you've died with him, Paul says, then the truth is these elements of the world have no power over you. What are these elements? The Greek phrase is stoicheia, which is a bit ambiguous um, what exactly it refers to. It can refer to like the actual physical building blocks of the world, you know, like atoms and molecules, particles, stuff like that. Sometimes it's the spiritual realities that are underlying the way the world is. What's clear, though, is that these stoicheia are like the ABCs of the world. They're the basic building blocks, the things that are the foundation of reality. They're principles, rules, laws, powers, spirits, whatever it might be that apart from Christ dictate how humans run their lives, often in ungodly ways. 
So Paul says, you're free from them, but you're still living in bondage to them. You live as though you were actually enslaved, but you're really free. Like, why in your right minds would you live as slaves when you're actually free? You know, summer's... uh, feels like it's a long way away, especially with the weather today. Um, But in June, we celebrate this holiday called Juneteenth, which uh, usually falls on June 19th. It's a coincidence, I think. Um, No, it's obviously not a coincidence. (laughs) Oof. Um, What does the holiday celebrate, if you haven't heard of it? Well, on January 1st, 1863, President Lincoln uh, signed the Emancipation Proclamation, declaring that all those who were slaves were now set free. So this was the truth, right? The reality for all the slaves in the Confederacy. However, there were parts of the Confederacy where this news hadn't reached yet. Specifically, there were a group of slaves in Galveston, Texas, that were still living and acting as slaves, even though they were set free on paper, right? It wasn't until June 19th, 1865, that a Union general arrived to announce the Emancipation Proclamation. See, these, uh, the reality was that they were, they were slaves, but they were actually free. They were living as if they were slaves, they were living in bondage, but the truth about them was that they didn't have to live that way. And that's what Paul says is happening among these Christians. They're no longer slaves to these elements of the world, but they're still living like they are. They're living as if they're slaves to religious rules and worship of spiritual beings, and that these things still run their way they live their lives instead of letting Christ live the way they live their lives. You know, Paul says they're dead to these religious rules, which in verse 21 says, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. They were voluntarily subjecting themselves to these rules about what food or drink they could have, right? What Jewish festivals or new moons or Sabbath days they had to follow, right? The specific ways they had to worship, ascetic practices, worshiping angels, and all that kind of stuff. So they were tempted to think that, yes, like I become a Christian through putting my faith in Jesus, but I grow as a Christian through following these rules and regulations and these practices, these rules which are rooted in Jewish legalism and these rules which are rooted in pagan mysticism. But regardless of where these rules are coming from, they're taking away from the freedom that they actually have in Christ. But Paul says not only do they take away from the freedom, they're actually full of other problems. Verse 22, uh, Paul says this, All these regulations refer to what's destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. So they're destined to perish. They have to do with things that are not eternal. So if they're not eternal, why think they're of the utmost importance? They're human commands. Uh, In the Gospels, in, in Mark, Jesus confronts the Pharisees and he says that the Pharisees are teaching commands of man, nullifying the word of God with their traditions. And that's another temptation that they had too. You know, the funny thing about these human traditions is that um, they fade, right? They perish. They're fads, they're teachings, right? They come and go, but the word of God, it lasts forever. And I think of the countless teachers who proclaim, self-proclaimed gurus, right? Who, who claim to have found the secret to the spiritual life, to spiritual fulfillment. Think of all the ones across history who've come and go. Think of all the different sects that have popped up and shut down. 
right? Human words are destined to perish, but God's word endures. In verse 23, Paul says that these doctrines, they have the reputation for being wise, and that's what they look like. You know, you look at culture around us, and it admires spiritual people, and often it's really weird spirituality, but they admire them, right? They put them on a pedestal, whether that's the Dalai Lama or Deepak Chopra or the guy who wrote The Secret or basically anybody that Oprah had invited to her show at some point, right? It looks really wise, Like they have some special insight into reality that everybody else doesn't have. But Paul says that these ways are actually slavery to the elemental principles. They're self-made religion, not true religion. It's false humility, not true humility. Why? Well, it's because it looks humble and defacing, but it's actually about the self. It's all about you becoming the best version of you possible. It's about the world revolving around you and your desires, not God and God's desires. And it's not only self-made in the sense that like it's invented by humans. It's self-made in the sense that the goal is to make oneself. You make yourself into a certain person. But here's the kicker. And Paul says that these rules are actually pointless. Why? Because they are no use in curbing self-indulgence. You know, they think uh, that asceticism or mysticism or following these strict man-made rules are the key to spiritual growth. But in fact, Paul says that they're useless. You know, thankfully, uh, it's just the Colossians that struggle with that, right? Like, we're not tempted to follow Old Testament Jewish festivals as though they're the key to growth, Right? We're not tempted to practice or to say, you have to practice Sabbath in this way only. You know, we're not worshiping angels or committing ascetic practices of like extreme fasting and beating yourself, right? We're not tempted with the Colossian heresy. You know, you might even think like, oh, maybe we need some more of that stuff. We need more don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. I mean, you look at the Christian world out there and it looks like maybe we're overfilled with being too permissive, right? After all, we see Christian leaders who are falling into substance abuse, sexual immorality, pride, lack of spiritual rhythms, treating ministry as if it's this job, this technique, but maybe don't handle, don't taste, don't touch could help us out with some of that stuff. But are we actually all that permissive? Like, how quick are we to say, well, do X if you want to grow. X helped me so much, so you should do it. No, no, not just you should. You need to do it. This is the way to do it. How quick are we to add sub-Christian routines and not just add them as like, oh, this is something that's helpful, but to think like, no, this is the key. Like, this is how you have to do it. As if they're necessary. As if we've unlocked the secret to growth because it's helpful for us, and then impose that on others. If only they did X, they wouldn't have these problems. If only they fasted more, if only they practiced Sabbath in this particular way, if only they started using a journaling app, right? If only they went through this Bible study or read this particular book, as if these were the key, the solution to growth. You know, humans have this tendency to universalize what works for themselves 
and think that others have to do it that same way too. This gets especially dangerous when it inspires uh, us to impose our rules, extra biblical rules onto others because it can puff us up. It can make us prideful. And it also robs others of the freedom they have in Christ by making them feel guilty. Um, I was thinking about this last week. Uh, Last week, Allison, our kids' ministry director, ran uh, our first parent meeting, which was really helpful. We're blessed with an amazing kids' ministry here at Story City. And that's not true for every church, uh, but God is doing something really cool uh, with our kids. And they're just blessed to have such a loving and uh, learning environment with great leaders. Uh, one of the things that, we, uh, that the Myers shared during this meeting uh, was that they've seen other families' devotional routines, which can feel like and look like a full-on worship service. Like you have a five-year-old preaching like a three-point sermon, and like the three-year-old is leading on piano, and like the teenagers are singing hymns and parts. It's like full-on worship service. And it's this elaborate thing, and it's easy to look at that and be like, oh, wow, like our family doesn't do that. Am I failing as a parent because our Jesus time looks super simple? Like, we're just reading the Bible and we pray when we can. Like, it doesn't look like a full-on liturgical thing. Like, if I don't practice it this way, am I a failure? Like, will my kids not grow in Christ? Am I a bad mom or dad or grandparent? What happens when we begin to elevate man-made rules to the level of, uh, man-made practices to the level of rules is that it puts us back under the power of legalism, which Christ died to set us free from. So these man-made rules and religions, even if they aren't bad in and of themselves, even if they have a hint of truth, aren't a silver bullet. They aren't the key to lasting spiritual growth. If they're turned into rules for everyone, instead of being just a solution, they become the problem. I've been watching this, uh, this Godzilla show on Apple TV, which I never remember subscribing to Apple TV, uh, but here we are, and now like, I always forget to unsubscribe, so we're watching the show. Um, and in the episode, there's this flashback when they show when the military first tries to kill Godzilla, so they think that they have the silver bullet, so to speak. So they lure him in, um, and the soldiers are watching safely from the beach, watching as Godzilla you know, flails and stuff through the, through the islands, and they're gonna put an end to him. So they're gonna hit him with their strongest weapon. They're gonna hit him with an H-bomb. So Godzilla's you know, doing his thing, uh, splashing around, having fun in the ocean, uh, and they drop the bomb on him, and there's a huge flash in the sky, mushroom cloud, no Godzilla. Little do they know that Godzilla actually feeds off of radiation. So the thing that they thought was going to destroy their foe was actually the very thing that made him grow. Legalistic, man-made spirituality is like that. Instead of solving the problem, it actually makes it worse. Instead of promoting spiritual growth, it doesn't last, it fades away, and it also promotes pride, selfishness, and unbelief in the true gospel. So what's the solution to this problem, to this heresy that we're all tempted by? Big idea this morning is this. It's that spiritual growth that actually lasts comes from knowing where you are with Christ. Uh, I would encourage you uh, to use a journal. Um, You know, this is one thing that we've uh, encouraged before. I've uh, really started to 
make a practice of it this year, to use a journal to take notes, uh, and to bring that to our missional communities as a way to share what God is doing in you as you're listening. Uh, Because oftentimes, the Lord might be saying something or highlighting certain things, but then Wednesday or Thursday comes along and you have completely forgotten. So it's nice to be able to write that and talk about it in your missional group. So, um, so this is the big idea. Uh, and I want to point to you three truths that Paul lays out in the second half of our passage this morning. Um, probably when you heard that we were reading chapters two and three, you're probably like, oh my gosh, how much are we going to read? But luckily they're like right next to each other. Um, so it wasn't all that much. Um, so knowing these truths of what Christ has already done not following man-made regulations is the key to lasting spiritual growth. So verse one, chapter three, Paul says this. He says, so you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So uh, just like 2.20, Paul starts out with this hypothetical. It says, if you've been raised with Christ. And we could translate the if as since, right? Since you've been raised with Christ, And we already saw that the truth is that we died with Christ, that his death on our behalf really is ours. His resurrection on our behalf is really ours. His new life really is ours. We've been transferred from this destiny of death into a destiny of life. So this is true of you. This is the truth. In biblical studies, we call this the indicative. There are indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives are what's already true. Imperatives are what you should do because this is true. So you've been raised with Christ and he says you're seated at the, who is seated at the right hand of God. So this is the first key to growth. The first key is seek the things above because you've been raised with King Jesus. Seek the things above because you've been raised with King Jesus. You know, Paul doesn't literally mean, like, seek things up there, like, pull out, like, a telescope and, like, try to find things that are, like, up in the sky, right? He doesn't literally mean things. Uh, The NIV, I like the way it translates it. It says, set your hearts on things above. This has to do with your affections, with the things that preoccupy your mind, the things that you most want and desire in life. What does your heart desire? What does it seek out? What's the very thing that drives what you do? If it's money, then your life is going to revolve around accumulation of wealth, right? Working for the sake of work, drivenness, neglecting relationships. If it's happiness, your life is going to revolve around eliminating or just flat out uh, ignoring things that are uncomfortable. If it's power, you'll do anything to eliminate threats. You'll manipulate situations and people to suit your own needs, If it's pleasure, you'll organize your work, your free time, your experiences, your family around things that you consider to be the good life. These are stories that we tell ourselves about what we should seek out. And the stories we tell ourselves actually drive how we behave. And Paul reminds us of a fundamental reality. He says that uh, knowing that Christ is seated at the right hand of God is part of the story that should define our lives. I mean, we all know this, right? On the third day, Christ rose from the dead. 40 days later, he ascended to heaven where he sits. And he's not just sitting up there, chilling, being like, man, like these people are taking a long time to like come up here. Like, when are you joining me? No, seated at the right hand is a phrase that means power. It means privilege. It means rule. 
All authority has been given to Christ, and he rules over creation, establishing his kingdom through his church. Growth comes from setting your heart on the things of God's kingdom, the things that King Jesus would have us pursue and desire. As Jesus himself said, seek first the kingdom. You know, the promise uh, of scripture is also that we're actually going to be seated with Christ. You know, that's crazy to think about, but it's amazing to think about what that actually means. Ephesians 6, 2. This is a verse I don't think we think about too much. It says, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So this isn't just like a future thing, right? We are currently, in some sense, seated with Christ in the heavens, right? How does that work? How does that work? It's really difficult to understand, but in some sense, we are sharing and participating in his rule alongside of him, right? If that's reality, then that means our true home is there now. That changes how we think about things today. If heaven's agenda, if the kingdom's way is where your heart really is now, then that changes things. You know, they say home is where the heart is. Heaven's your home. Your heart is gonna seek those things if you believe that. The things above, the things that are not destined to perish. So knowing that and seeking those things is the first key. The second key is found in verse two. It says this, set your minds, so if the first one was set your hearts, this is set your minds on things above, not earthly things, for you died. Second point is this, set your minds on things above because you've died with Christ. If the first one, again, deals with our hearts and affections, the second one deals with our minds, it's about how we think, in Romans 12, 2, Paul says, don't be conformed to this age, which is a lot of what Jonathan was talking about last week. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can do what? Discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. There's a discernment. There's a thinking, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who transforms our mind. And it's really easy to fall back into like pre-Christian ways of thinking, especially when it comes to our growth, right? Paul just illustrated this. The Colossians surrounding culture taught them a particular way to think about their spiritual growth, right? It's technique, it's asceticism, it's mysticism, it's rules. Our surrounding culture might have different ways to think about that, right? It's impersonal, it's self-centered, it's all about being technical, right? And as a Christian, we have to learn to discern the ways of God as opposed to the ways of the world. A Christian has to remember that the old self died with Christ. And because of that, these old ways of being, these elements of the world can't control the way that you live. Knowing the reality of your death in Christ to those things changes how you think about them. Finally, verse three, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the last one. Live your life because it is hidden in Christ. To be hidden in Christ, it doesn't mean like hidden, like hide and seek, like where is it, where's your life, where'd it go, 
right? It's a mystery. Who knows where it is? No, it's, think of it as like a treasure that's hidden in a treasure chest, right? It's a place of security. You've been reading this book, um, not to get all legalistic and be like, you have to read this book, because then I'd be doing what, the, what I just told you not to do. Um, but it's, I've found it really helpful. Um, and he says something really powerful. He says this, he says, <clears throat> all of us are abiding. This is uh, John Mark Comer, Practicing the Way. He says, all of us are abiding. The question isn't, are you abiding? It's, what are you abiding in? All of us have a source we're rooted in, a kind of default setting we return to, an emotional home. It's where our minds go when we're not busy with tasks, where our feelings go when we need solace, where our bodies go when we have free time, where our money goes after we pay the bills. We will make our home somewhere. The question is, where? And this matters because wherever we abide in will determine the fruit of our lives for good or for ill. You know, if you are a Christian, your life truly is hidden in Christ. It's where your life truly abides. But are you living as though that's where it really abides? Is your heart actually abiding in these other things? What are you tempted to abide in instead of Christ? You know, when you feel that tug to abide in other things, what do you do to recenter yourself, to remind yourself of where you are with Christ? Notice each of these three points. They're about where you are with Christ. You're raised with Christ. You died with Christ. You are hidden in Christ. And notice the promise that Paul makes at the very end. Paul says, that you will appear with him in glory. That's the goal of spiritual growth. It is appearing with him in glory, being made like him in glory, being made like him in character, and ultimately eternal life with him. Paul teaches us that the key to spiritual growth isn't following these man-made rules and regulations. Those can actually derail our growth. The key is where you are with Christ. You've died, you've been raised, you're hidden with him. That's the source of spiritual growth that lasts, and it lasts into eternity. Right now, we're going to go into a time of communion. Uh, communion is this act which is for believers, those who've put their faith in Jesus, where we take bread and the fruit of the vine, these elements which symbolize his body and his blood, which were given for us. They remind us of his death, which is for us. The symbolism reminds us of the fact that just like bread is life, he is our source for life. But one of the things that we tend to forget, but the earliest reformers made an important part of the Lord's Supper, is that Christ is currently seated at the right hand of the Father. How often do we remember where Christ is while we take communion? As they take communion, the reformers would pray this. With this in mind, maybe it's not on the screen, all right. Um, So Calvin, he'd pray this. There you go. It says, with this in mind, let us raise our hearts and minds on high where Jesus Christ is, in the glory of his Father, and from whence we look for him at our redemption. We remember, although Christ is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, We are present to him by faith in our hearts and in our minds. 
There's so much joy in knowing that as we've seen that knowing where Christ is and where we are with him is a key to our spiritual growth. So with this in mind, let us raise our hearts and minds on high where Jesus Christ is in the glory of his father and from where we look for him at our redemption. Let's pray and take communion. Jesus, we thank you for your body that was broken for us, for your blood that was spilled for us. We remember the gift of salvation. We remember the gift of your presence. We remember the truth of where you are and that you wait for us. As we do this, I pray that you would remind us of the depth of the gospel that you remind us of your love and your sacrifice and how you continue to be the source of our life. We're thankful, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. If you'd like to join us in person, our services are Sundays at 10 a.m. and we're located at 11011 Havenhurst Avenue in Granada Hills. Find us on Instagram at StoryCityGH or online at StoryCityChurch.com. Go and be the church.